Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. Abu Bakar al-Baghdadi is dead. He died after running into a dead-end tunnel, whimpering and crying and screaming all the way. Well, Murphy... This was a big, it was a big deal. Let's, let's acknowledge it up front. Uh, getting out Baghdadi was a, uh, was a good thing, a good thing for the world. That said, I just want to talk about the politics of it. Uh, first of all, his handling of it. The thing that struck me about it was had the president done what the president seems incapable of doing, which is going minimalist, had he just announced this in fairly simple terms and allowed the military to brief on it, he would have maybe gotten more out of it than using language like that, which the military guys will tell you is inflammatory. And it may not even be true how al-Baghdadi died. Nobody will confirm it. president may have embellished. But also he went on for an hour in a press conference that devolved into what they often do, which is the greatness of Trump. Yeah, subtlety is not the uh, hallmark of this administration, and I, I agree about the tone of it. I, I expected him to say that the troops were begging him to personally lead the operation, but unfortunately the <laughs> bone spurs kicked in, and he, he couldn't quite get the combat boots on in time. You to, couldn't. You know, I was wondering how long it would take for you to slip that in there. Well, I, I, I can't yeah. resist, but I'll tell you, I think the Democrats are making a political mistake on this one. If you don't like Trump, as evidenced by the beginning of our podcast here, uh, this is yet another log on the fire of why he's so horrible. But as long as we're debating this, the category we're debating is how Trump handled a huge military or uh, special operations victory under his watch. The category is very bad terrorists dead under Trump's watch. So he may not be, you know, doing it with great finesse and the boorishness is off the chart as usual, but it's a good thing to be talking about if you're Trump. It helps him. So if I were the Democrats, I would switch the channel and, and, and stop trying to kind of give him a parking ticket for driving erratically uh, on the way to the rescue, so to speak, and get on to other things, including what Nancy just did on impeachment, which I thought was shrewd. Yeah, it was. Although it may be confusing to people because for for six weeks she's been resisting uh, calling for a House vote on the impeachment inquiry. And the Republicans have been hammering her for it, saying that she wasn't following the procedure that had been established in the past, that she was abridging the president's rights and so on. Even though 50 of the Republicans were actually in these depositions that were being taken – then she announced that she was going to have an impeachment vote, and now right. um, the Republicans are protesting that she's trying to legitimate an illegitimate. Right. So the whole thing is a little confusing. Yeah, I think it's super inside baseball. You know, it. Um, she flip flopped clearly, but you know, these days everybody in politics seems to flip flop, and I think the flop was getting out of the morass of a process debate. I mean, the Democrats have learned from Mueller. Keep it simple. Keep the narrative simple. Trump, you know, uh, uh, on the phone with the Ukraine asking for them to do a political hit job on one of his opponents and holding back very much needed weapons aid. And, of course, today uh, we have the emergence of this new whistleblower, the, the lieutenant colonel from the Army, who seems to be a very impressive patriot. Not ac- according to Laura Ingram. I, I think her uh, odds they were, che- they were chewing on him last night uh, as a potential yeah. double agent. 
It was disgraceful. I have a feeling she's closer to a red agent than he is. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, anyway, it, it was disgusting. But the point is, the more they can keep the, their, you know, the focus on the main stuff here and not on the procedural sideshows. And, you know, I think there are 5,000 people following every twist and turn of this, but to most people, first issue isn't even impeachment. It's real life stuff like cost of health care and real wages. Right. So simple's right. good. And she, she pushed it back to simple. So here's something that's been interesting me is the calendar of all of this. Now they're talking about an impeachment vote by Christmas. What that would mean is that un- unless Mitch McConnell handles the entire trial, and some of this is in the hands of the Chief Justice uh, Roberts, who would preside over such a, ch- a trial, uh, this would uh, open in January. And for those of us who are consumed by the political calendar, the Iowa caucuses are on February 3rd. Right. This trial would require six of the people who are running for president of the United States to sit quietly at their tables and listen to evidence. Sitting quietly at the table <laughs> is hard for any United yes. States senator, but for six running for president who would rather be in Iowa than sitting at those tables. You know, it's interesting because there are some candidates, Biden, Buttigieg, who, uh, among them, who are free to, who will be free to uh, talk to people in Iowa during the month of January about those issues that you rightly say are most important to them. And these other folks are going to be jurors. Yeah, yeah, uh, sitting tied there, down in Washington. Yeah. <laughs> I predict Kamala Harris will like throw her water pitcher. You know, they'll do anything to dominate cable TV. I think you can argue this one either way. On one hand, better to be on the ground. On the other hand, the Democrats, I think many of them will be riveted by this TV show and you get to be right in the middle of it, although often sitting there listening, which is, as you say, not their natural deal. Uh, you know, it's funny. I heard, I heard some interesting Republican chatter on all this timing stuff. Which was, you know, they're all trapped, and we've talked about all that before. A theory of, you know, if it slowed down, the Senate filing deadline started in the spring for primaries. Yeah. And senators might be a lot braver in June uh, than they're going to be in February. This is why, by the way, my guess is that the White House and uh, McConnell may want to speed up the calendar. Yeah, and, and uh, the, get this over with. The, the 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 opposite argument, though, is if you you also you could want to delay it so that you can employ the uh, Merrick Garland principle, which is don't do anything in the final year of a presidency. Let the voters decide. Which is ultimately where I think a lot of the people you hope will be heroes will land. Which is, yeah, it, what he did was awful. What he did was terrible, but. The be- the best uh, verdict will be rendered in November. Right. Let and the country let's let the, the voters jury. decide. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think, think they that- very likely are to go there. It's just an interesting debate among the people in the Senate who are wish the president ill will but don't know what to do about it. One theory is go fast. And if there was a vote, then there's 10 months to clean up Pence and switch the focus of the election over to Warren or whoever it might be, Judge Biden, et cetera. The other theory is slow down so the primary threat for a bunch of them is gone and, as you say, then punt to the election. Um, I think the danger of the shutdown Garland thing is, boy, oh, boy, what a wonderful mix of vitamins and miracle Grow fertilizer for Democratic-based turnout which already behind a presidential, but boy, that's a good bloody shirt to wave around. Yeah. Well, look, it's not an ideal situation for Donald Trump. The one thing you don't hear 
much anymore is how this is going to be a big boon to his candidacy. Yep. I don't think that's the case anymore. I'll tell you who it's been a boon for is Tom Steyer. You know, <laughs> I was the, I was one of the most uh, critical people when he started impeachment ads seven months in or whenever it was. He's now running ads voluminously touting the fact that he was the first one into the impeachment tub. And, you know, I have to say, I went back this morning and looked at polling from the four early states. And uh, Steyer is, you know, sort of creeping up in all of those states. He's ahead of uh, Booker. He's ahead of uh, poor Beto O'Rourke. Who? In, in, in Nevada, I think he may be ahead of Buttigieg. And there's a reason for this. And you and I can appreciate it as people who uh, used to... Uh, engage in the black arts. He is spending a fortune on television. And what it reminds me of is this guy's going to be around. You know, other people will have to quit the race, but he has enough in the bank to finance his own campaign right to the end. He's likely to be one of the people who is hanging around. Yeah, uh, I think for the, a while in this race. The, well, you're absolutely right. He's spending so much money. It's like watching somebody try to, you know, drive a nail using a a, a huge boulder. You know, e- even the dullest nail can get driven partially into the ground. I want to see if with that deep checkbook and uh, the apparent ambition to keep trying, though, as much as he's crept up, he's only crept up. I I, I don't think his message has let the world of fire and he doesn't have a base but what if he decides to use all that money to hurt somebody else uh to open up a lane or at least somebody makes the argument to him then he could be even more of a factor which is you know turn all that money into an attack on somebody that could slow him down so yeah i agree he he could be a factor i think right now he's putting a lot of he's back into the impeachment business and trying to grab credit and hope that he has the uh purveyor of the impeachment message, the early purveyor of yeah. the impeachment message how, will be how far do you swept along here. I mean, I don't think, I think he is going to end up being the guy who spent more money getting less delegates than anyone in history. Remember, you and I are sadly old enough to remember, you know, the John Connolly stuff and, um, and uh, Phil uh, Graham. Phil yeah. Graham. The guys who just spend a ton of dough and come up empty. I think that could happen. That's likely to happen yeah, here, but it's really interesting to see him. If nothing else, he's assuring himself a place on the uh, debate stage, on the yeah. debate platform uh, for a while. So the guy who we know will be on the debate platform and right in the middle for some time to come is Joe Biden. Uh, and as I've said before, you know, he's been in a candidate protection program relative to interviews for most of his his. You know, they've done about a handful. This whole election, which I've argued has, uh, you know, you can't sustain throughout a presidential race. You can't hide your candidates' deficiencies. But they it also rises to stakes I- on the gaffes because if when he comes out, everything if he makes a mistake, it seems to be a bigger thing. And being a gaff machine, you know, that's a mistake. So I totally agree. But now they've unveiled him a little big interview. I think in a really smart way that 60 Minutes is the biggest platform you can have on television. They booked themselves an interview with Nora O'Donnell uh, on Sunday night, and he had some good moments. Let's listen to, to one of them here. President Trump has said publicly, Joe Biden and his son are stone cold corrupt. And chances are he's watching this interview. Anything you want to say to him? Yeah, Mr. President, Release your tax returns. Let's see how straight you are. Okay, old buddy? I put out 21 years of mine. 
So show us your tax returns. But what are you hiding? You want to deal with corruption? Start to act like it. Release your tax returns or shut up. <laughs> that's that's good, Biden. That's the best Biden. Yeah, I've that's seen. that classic Biden. That's what people want to see from him. That's what they were hoping for. The guy who could go, you know, right at Trump in a very colloquial way. Pretty pretty good stuff. Yeah. Look, um, I, I give him an A or maybe A minus on performance, and it showed that interviews can be his friend. Maybe they've learned that lesson. You know, a, a big sixty minutes candidate interview is not what it used to be. But it's still something. Nothing's what it used to be. Let's stipulate. Yeah. (laughs) The the point being, they've also got something now. They can show donors. They can show everybody to show what good Biden looks like. They can show Biden what good Biden looks like. So I thought it was a a very good night for him because he was comfortable, strong, and offense. Let me play one more clip that reminded us that it is also sometimes dicey with Biden from the very same interview. Your opponents, because they're promising so much change, they seem to be igniting the Democratic base that turns out in the primary, younger voters. The fact of the matter is that if you take a look at who votes in these primaries, overwhelmingly people over the age of 50 who vote in these primaries. I want more young people engaged. I want them voting. Memo to uh, (laughs) Joe Biden, do not turn into political commentator and, and, and write off young people and say, well, it's the old folks who are going to actually make the difference here. He's right. Of course. Yeah, no, and she had it wrong. I mean, that 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 was not her finest moment. She blew that question on the facts. But you're right. He doesn't want to be the uh, the narrator of the campaign. He wants to be the star of it. Though I'll tell you, I'll give him this. 60 minutes now, you look at the demos of that audience, it's AARPville. So maybe who saw it agreed. But uh, you're right. You, 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 maybe, you don't want to be explaining that, the Maybe that's what you and I were you and I tuned were in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I had my Jaritol exactly. with me when I was watching. This is not likely to quell a lot of the, you know, Democrats generally, uh, you know, bedwetting is a major, major (laughs) sport for Democrats. Nate Silver did a really interesting uh, piece the other day. Democrats, like voters, they're happy with the field that they have. They're not crying out for, you know, the elites are crying out for a different yep. candidate. Democrats aren't in this poll. 30% said that they thought their choices were fair or poor. And 65% good or excellent. That's more than at any time in any cycle since 2008. And it's just about where it was in 2008, maybe a little better. So the market is not demanding uh, something else. Yeah, no, it's a bedwetting anthem, and it's not connected to the reality. The fact is they've even got unknown candidates who would answer some of the dreams of the elite. If they'd ever discover Michael Bennett, who'll probably be out of the race soon for money, but they, they some of their one percenters are actually pretty good. But out in primary voter world, they, they seem pretty happy. I want to flash back one sec to Biden because there's one thing I know we both want to talk about, speaking of elites and, and bedwetting in the Democratic Party, not that we Republicans don't have it too. Which is all the, all the, uh, grumping about Biden, the fact that he hasn't raised as much money. He's kind of down in the second tier, unlike Bernie, Pete, or Elizabeth Warren. He's gonna have a super PAC, which will be an independent committee that can take unlimited checks. Now, that's the French explanation. In English, it means he's gonna have 10 to 20 million dollars of new campaign money that allies will run, and he needs it. Don't, for all the crap he's gonna take, don't you think he had to do it? 
Oh my God! Yes, I, I, you know, he will. He did take crap immediately, particularly from Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who uh, have made this a centerpiece of their campaigns. And probably for that reason, he would have liked to have made the announcement in French and not English. <laughs> but the reality is, he has no chance uh, unless he fi- gets an infusion of cash. And one of the problems for Biden's candidacy is he has not been able to raise money in sufficient numbers online. He is doing it the old-fashioned way, going to fundraisers, raising money from people who can write big checks. That's offensive to some of the Democratic base, but it is what has been left to him. And, you know, I think it speaks to a different problem that he's going to feel later, particularly in a place like Iowa, uh, in the caucuses, we've talked about this because this is a surrogate for enthusiasm. And if you don't have enthusiasm, you don't raise money online. But he, he has no chance in this race yeah. unless he finds. And, uh, you know, there's some names associated with this new super PAC that's forming that really raised my eyebrows. One was Juliana Smoot, who was the finance director for the Obama campaign in 2008 and really one of the best and most connected fundraisers in the country. Steve Shale, who ran Florida for uh, Obama. Uh, so, I, you know, I think that uh, this is serious, and it's probably the only way that he can survive this process. So, yeah, I think he has to take the hit. Yep. And, and then he's got to move on. Yeah. No, I agree. He has no choice. And he needs the voter contact muscle. And again, the, that crew, with the nice calling card of the 60 Minutes interview, which is exactly what donors needed to see, they're going to they're be able to put a few million together quickly and do something with it. You know, I, I've got to do the piety alert, too, because in the elite world and some of the grassroots, there'll be all this carping about Biden, slave of the big donor. But the fact is, one reason Bernie can comfortably campaign against big donors is he doesn't have anyone to give him money. He can't pass the serious test for a lot of them. And Elizabeth Warren has made a huge meal out of this very shrewdly and effectively. But if you actually get out the campaign accountant and look at her report, she transferred over, I believe, about $9 million from her Senate account. And of that $9 million that went into her presidential campaign, $6 million of it was big donor money, raised the same way Biden is. So, you know, there's a zipper on all the white robes here that they've slipped into on this issue. And well, <laughs> Biden will get a will get a beating in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. That'll mean TV spots and digital, which he needs to get a message out. So uh, now that they're do it, doing it, they should do it big and just own it and, and use it for message. She's going to have, you know, she originally said she would uh, review this, revisit this if she's the nominee because she doesn't want to uh, unilaterally disarm, which is on- honestly the right position. Trump is amassing a huge pot of money. And so, you know, I think she she should do that. She's since rescinded that under pressure from the Berniaks. Uh, I, I think that's a mistake. Uh, speaking of Elizabeth Warren, she was the subject this morning of a piece in the New York Times that was inevitable. She's definitely getting the, the uh, front-runner treatment yep. now. And this was one that I'm sure they expected and they knew it was going to come. She's been moonlighting for decades. Uh, you know, she's a fine bankruptcy expert, and she's been moonlighting, sometimes representing uh, corporate interests, the Hunts and in, in Texas, I think Travelers Insurance is another, uh, in bankruptcy cases. Nothing nefarious about it from what you read in the piece, but she was on that side of the fight. There was a professor from here at the University of Chicago, uh, 
who was quoted there, who was not a supporter of hers, but an expert on bankruptcy, saying her the positions she took in those suits were very consistent uh, with her overall position on bankruptcy. So there wasn't a conflict. But, you know, that's not how it's going to be played by yep. her opponents. Yeah, no, she's got more right-wing corporate clients than I do. I'm a little depressed. Um, we're see. I think yeah, it's what's part up of with a, that, huh? Yeah, I don't know. I, I clearly need to hit the phones and give Ray Hunt a call. So, <laughs> so I, I think there's a larger narrative, too, because this will be a good thing for the Bernie X to chew on, and I think it'll have some legs. But it points to a bigger narrative of a, who. what does she really believe? She used to be a Republican. Then she flipped over. She wrote a famous book and half the policies in her book about helping the working middle class she's flipped on. She may flip on Medicare for All and the Medicare for All who polling tested might need it. Um, and so you start to get to the who is Elizabeth Warren and what does she really believe, you know, narrative, which if you do get stuck with that, it is a very hard one to get out of. So uh, as you say, this is part of being the front runner, time to go through the car wash a few hundred times. And uh, I thought this was a bit of a thing here. And uh, we're, we're seeing how she navigates it. Yeah, I wonder if the super PAC that Biden is putting together is uh, compiling that research uh, as we speak. <laughs> I, w- I would think uh-huh. so. And, you know, the other nice thing about a super PAC, not to beat it to death because there will be a pricey pays in criticism, but they can go make the Medicare for all or not issue a big deal. It's the perfect thing to go run with, inject it into the races where we know in the polling it's it's by no means a big majority or supermajority position even among Democratic primary voters. So they can cloud seed for Biden and maybe give him an issue that could that could slow her down a little bit. Can I ask you a tender question? Of course. I say this as- as a guy who admires you greatly, but you ran a super PAC. I did. The biggest ever in a Republican primary. I'm the moron who blew $100 million on Jeb Bush for president in the super Okay, PAC. I was trying to ease you into the tub, oh, no, man, no, and then I you busted yourself. Time. No, no, absolutely. Uh, so it's not a guarantee. That, no. You know. It's just a tool. Look, if, if look, I, I, I've been short Biden. You know, I've got this bet with Shrum that Biden won't make it to New Year's Day. He'll drop out from a year and a half ago. A dinner bet, which I, knowing how Shrum can order expensive wine may cost me. But I'm still <laughs> short. I'm still short Biden because I think he's not what they're looking for. And a super PAC can't change that. Jeb Bush, God bless him, was not what the Republican primary voters were looking for. But, you know, we could... We could give it the full push, and we hurt Marco Rubio a lot, who was also from Florida in our competition in many ways. So Super PAC can be a catalyst, but it can't deliver success. Biden, just with no money in the bank, needs voter yeah, contact, dead. and it's the only only he's one dead. he's got. So pay the tax of criticism and get on the air and, and, and on the IP addresses and do something with it. So one guy we haven't talked about yet is Mayor Pete, who continues to make progress in in Iowa, in New Hampshire, uh, where this whole process begins. And that's one of the things that's freaking the Biden people out is that he might not finish, not only might, might he not yeah, finish third. first in those states, but he could finish third or even fourth. Yep. Uh, and that is a bad place for a putative front runner uh, to be. But Pete has his own uh, problem, which uh, is a uh, African-American voters have been resistant to his candidacy. Some of it is unfamiliarity. Some of it has to do with controversies in South Bend uh, relative to policing. Some of it has to do, and I've said it, and it's uncomfortable to talk about, but there are segments of the black community that are deeply, deeply conservative on social issues, including 
homosexuality and homophobia is a real issue for him that is now being discussed openly and he has to figure out how to pick the lock yeah that, you know the famous uh, memo from his pollster joe benenson leaked about a focus group of african americans uh primary voters down in south carolina showing some particularly older ones the uh resistance or the eyebrow raising or the, the headwinds whatever you want to call it of being gay um I'm curious, what do you think is a wily uh, Democratic operative? Do you think the Pete guys leaked that thing on purpose in some expectations no. trick? Yeah, no, I no, think no. that's too clever by I think half. zero, get, having zero in polls uh, of African-American voters probably sets expectations yeah. adequately. You didn't need to leak that memo. I think it, actually it's a, it's a problem for them that they need to figure out how in the world a memo that clearly wasn't handled by a lot of people uh, yeah, got out and ma- managed to find find its way out. But here's what I've been, th- you know, I've been thinking about this in the last uh, 24 hours. There is resistance in the African American community, but he doesn't need a hundred percent of the African American vote. And the question is, is there a a group of voters in that community who are receptive to him? Mm-hmm. And can he get, you know, 15, 20 percent if he looks like someone who has a legitimate chance for the nomination? Right. Uh, in uh, you know, after Iowa and New Hampshire, I think, Mike, the real problem that he has to think about and is maybe in the general election because Donald Trump will run the most insidious voter suppression kind of campaign against him among those very voters uh, in a general election. And if you have a fall off among African-American voters, and we saw it in 2016, that can be meaningful, particularly in these battleground states. Yeah, I, I would say a couple of things. One, if you've been having a lot of thoughts about this for the last 24 hours, you've just given Breitbart News a great headline, Axelrod having gay thoughts. So I would get ready for a lot of <laughs> crazy mail in all caps, spiral writing on that page. story again. Yeah, yeah, there yeah. you go. They're okay. doing anything for a click. But no, your, your point is right. Now, look, I, if I were the Mayor Pete campaign, I would see there's an upside to this because expectations are very low for him in South Carolina. And if he can be the Biden understudy who breaks through and wins South Carolina, he will have a surge everywhere, including there. And that energy and momentum will give him a platform to engage on this issue is a little bit akin to John F. Kennedy in West Virginia. Wait, wait, I don't understand. You're saying that if he does well in Iowa... And breaks through in New Hampshire that he'll have momentum going into South Carolina. Is that what you're saying? Yes. He'll have a lot of momentum. The polls will move in his favor, even in the African-American community. But most importantly, he'll have a moment of natural stature where he can go in and address this. And as long as he doesn't get slaughtered there, it's not disqualifying. So I, I think this is something that in some ways is an opportunity for him to kind of beat this issue now, get in front of it, and get a lot of credit in the media narrative for coming back, if he has enough success to warrant a viable South Carolina campaign. Now, in the general, you're right, there's risk. There's risk for Kamala Harris, any candidate of color against Trump, because he's a racist. So if the Democrats want no risk, nominate Bullock or Bennett, but they're not going to do that, apparently. I asked Pete about this. He was at, at my Institute of Politics a couple of weeks ago, and I asked him this very question. And his his answer was, hey, Trump's going to find something about everybody that he's going to hammer away uh, about, you know. So there's no candidate who is going to be uh, immune to, to his dark campaign impulses. And, uh, you know, 
I mean, he's not wrong about that. The question is the potency of yeah. various arguments. Well, we all know if Hillary Clinton had done better with African Americans, particularly men, older men in Detroit and Milwaukee, Michigan and Wisconsin probably would not have been won by Donald Trump. So it is a thing. Yeah. It's a high class problem for Very high Pete class. Buttigieg, yeah. who was unknown ten months ago and is now considered a top tier candidate. Uh, or a, at least a sub top tier candidate for president. So, uh, good on, good on him for that. Uh, so this week, there's actually a really big event that's going to happen in Iowa, in Des Moines at the end of the week. It is an iconic event. It used to be called the Jefferson Jackson dinner. That is taboo now. Yeah. No, now it's the guilt dinner. What do they call it's, it? Now? I think it's called the law and justice dinner. Oh. But, yeah. uh, but the dinner, is really quite an event, it, and it is where it's John Kerry had a breakthrough performance there in 2004, Barack Obama in 2008. It is like the Roman Coliseum. It is in an arena. You bring your supporters. They fill the upper bowl of the arena. Of course, don't, Democrat donors fill the lower tier of the arena, and each candidate is allotted 10 minutes to stand up, no prompter, no notes, and make their case. And it's a place where people have generally successful candidates define their candidacy and it's the starting gun on the final sprint of the uh Iowa caucuses so it's a it's a pretty big deal the question is with 14 candidates speaking yeah. can someone have a breakthrough moment well that is the question it's going to be quite the endurance event but it is the biggest single night of the caucus so my guess is if Biden is great could be a bit of a restart for him. I, I would I would take the short odds on that, but it could happen. Biden, I mean, I'll be interested in how he does on a platform with a you know a definite time uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, limit and no notes and no prompter. If he can deliver a stemwinder, that would be actually re- reassuring to people. If he can deliver a coherent speech in this setting, that would be uh, big. Well, if I were Biden, I, I would be practicing every day, you know, and this is so hard to do with Biden, so this could be dream consultant stuff, but he needs a slow, deliberate, strong speech that builds that is basically, I think the first line ought to be, my friends, let me tell you how I will kick Donald Trump's ass. Place will go crazy, he'll get some energy, and then point by point, just destroy Trump all night long. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, And he, you know, the question is, can he do it coherently? Obama memorized his speech, spent every night on the road leading mm-hmm. up to the J.J. alone in his hotel room practicing and memorizing a speech that we were painstakingly yep. uh, on. So it, it's a big deal. And, um, you know, and for Buttigieg, Buttigieg has a problem. He They did a, a lottery. He is the first of 14 candidates to speak. Back in 2008, Obama, who took the place by storm, uh, spoke last and it be, it was sort of and Hillary <laughs> yeah, Clinton spoke advantage. right before him. Is somebody a yeah, federal judge so, now? How'd that last thing happen? <laughs> uh, that we'll talk about. We'll leave off, that for your off, your, your volume two yeah. of your memoirs, we'll t- right? T- exactly. Talk about that offline. But I'll tell you something. Part of part of what makes the thing important isn't just the event itself, and the, the, I mean the the speakers, but the organization around getting yep. people to the event. These, this is always a spectacle, marching to the arena with your supporters. What kind of crowd, you know, crowd response do you 
get. It's an organizing challenge, yeah. and so that'll be uh, interesting well, as that, well. That Elizabeth, means Elizabeth Warren will probably put on a great pre-optic show. She's got the muscle. You know, I think Cory Booker's a performer. Maybe he'll have the moment he desperately needs. I mean, I know a lot he, of things that Kamala happen. Harris. They're counting yeah. on this to All they got. try and re- reignite their campaign. So that'll be on. I think it's Friday, Friday night. So uh, let's you know if 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 you're home and. Uh, um, the World Series will be over by then, one way or the I, I other. I was at uh, the smaller but still powerful Christian coalition version of that back in the 90s, and it was kind of this huge outdoor kind of corrugated metal deal. And the place was packed, bunch of candidates. I was working for Lamar Alexander back in 95, and we brought the judges along, you know, any trick we can to get through that alive. And then Buchanan came up, and I'll never forget his closing line, which shook the building and the crowd so intensely, I started doing the crab sidestep to avoid it because I thought we might have a collapse. I was trying to pull two kids <laughs> with me because I thought, this is good, the building's coming back. And the great line was, and then, my friends, as president of the United States, I will turn to President you know, Xi Jinping, whoever it was, and I will tell him, because of the forced abortions in China, he sold his last chopsticks in the shopping malls of America. Then I will raise my hand, take the oath of office, and after I'm sworn in as your president, I will turn to William J. Jefferson Clinton and say, you, sir, are under arrest. <laughs> the place went yeah. crazy. So this that, is a throwback yeah, in that the oratory the, means something. These are all, these, these could all be future Trump lines. Uh, well, actually. I'm, I'm sure he he'll live. If, yeah. li- if he's listening to the show, he, he may get some ideas here. Uh, but anyway, we're see. It's going to be big, big and right. People should tune in and, and get a gallon of popcorn because it's going to go forever. Mailbag. Yes. Let's zip it open and see what we've got here. If you want to send us a question for the mailbag, you can do it. Just go to hacksontap at gmail.com, hacksontap at gmail.com for the trick questions that we love to answer every week. All right, Axe, what do we got? What's number one? Well, Rachel says this question is largely directed at Mike Murphy. I'm a millennial center-left voter. My dad is a Reagan-era classic conservative who, as Hispanic small business owner, has never been a fan of Trump. He has said emphatically that he will not vote for a far-left candidate in 2020. Is there any way you, as a Republican never-Trumper, human scum, I think it's referred to in some quarters, uh, could be convinced to vote for an Elizabeth Warren, or how can I uh, convince my dad uh, to grin and bear voting for a progressive candidate? Should that be the nominee? Well, tough, tough call. First of all, just tell your dad you love him and quit bugging him about Elizabeth Warren. You're just going to give him a massive (laughs) migraine. Conservatives are not in the business of being for Elizabeth Warren. Your job is to make sure he doesn't vote for Trump. So a couple things to think about. One, if you're in a really red state or really blue state, uh, leave him alone because his vote won't matter in the Electoral College. But if you're in a swing state, there are other things he can do if Elizabeth is the nominee, then vote for her. The key is that he not get Trump's vote. That's minus one. He can write in John McCain. He can write in Ronald Reagan. There are things conservatives can do. Or Mike Murphy. Uh, it, well, I'm, there's been a national groundswell, but I'm trying to tamp it down. Um, my point being, just don't let him vote for Trump. He doesn't have to vote for Warren. That could be a bridge too far. But we'll see what Warren flips into. We'll see what Warren we get if she's the nominee uh, by October next year. So just uh, just work on him to take a pass on Trump. That's enough for now. Otherwise, bridge too far. Now, X for you from Bob, with 100 days to go before Iowa, it's actually a few days less than that now, would you rather be polling well nationally like Biden or gaining momentum in Iowa like Mayor Pete? Which poll you want? Well, first of all, 
if uh, people are running their campaigns right, they're not looking at polling at all. They're looking at how they're accumulating commitments to go to the caucuses uh, in Iowa. One of my questions about uh, Mayor Pete's campaign is are they – organized enough to be banking the commitments. They're definitely generating movement in the poll in Iowa, in polls in Iowa, New Hampshire. In Iowa in particular, are they generating the the commitments? Are they communicating with Mm -hmm. their voters? And, you know, caucuses require that. Elizabeth Warren's doing it. Uh, That's what Pete Biden and the others are going to need to do. In terms of national polls, you know, they're great for guys like you and me to talk about. Their donors look at them. We were, I think, at this juncture in 2008, you know, we were definitely double digits behind in the national polls. I think there was one poll in early fall of 2007 where we were, uh, you know, 25, 30 points behind uh, Hillary Clinton. And that created enormous consternation among donors who were calling for me and others to be summarily dismissed. And, yeah, uh, sorry about all those letters I was sending back then. I apologize. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was. <laughs> I recognize your handwriting. <laughs> uh, but we had a plan, and the plan was win Iowa, and the nomination is within reach. Lose Iowa, and it's go home. And I think that that is uh, certainly true for a candidate like Buttigieg. I think Elizabeth Warren now is under pressure to win Iowa. If she doesn't win Iowa with all these expectations, that will damage her candidacy. And Biden has to do well enough to go on. He can finish second in Iowa. If he starts finishing third mm-hmm. or fourth, I think that's going to create a real panic and uh, maybe an unraveling. But, you know, people don't like it, but this is a sequential process. Iowa is the gateway. Yeah, I tell people in California here you want to uh you want to carry the California primary for your candidate, call your relatives in Concord, New Hampshire, because it is sequential. I would rather have the local poll if I had to choose in the national poll. Absolutely. Now, the national poll, the problem is in many ways it, there's it, there's telling information there, but it's also a noise meter of what happened in the media cycle the last 10 days. So it is incredibly influential, but not always that indicative. It's kind of like a toddler with a Star Wars laser sword running around. It can really hurt your candidacy, but... But, but it might not really be reality. Reality is in the future. Uh, John Angler, a great old Paul, was governor of Michigan a thousand times. We could never get him to look at polls. And, you know, this is how he ran campaigns where he came from behind most of the time after people had written him off. And he used to say, look, I'm sure it's fascinating, but polls give me a big report on what happened last week. I'm interested in what I can do now to make next week happen. And there's some wisdom in that. So, uh uh, you're absolutely right. And in a caucus, you want those caucus cards. You want the commitments. It's, it's like door-to-door catalog sales, man. You want to – But poll, wanna the, I'll tell you when I'm going to be looking at polls. I'm going to be looking at polls from those states in the days leading up Hell yeah. to the event. Because if you have momentum going into the final weekend, that momentum generally carries. Yep. So look for that. Until then, it's just a parlor game. Hey, how about time for – Last call. Here's mine. The President of the United States was in Chicago yesterday, suggesting that Afghanistan was safer than Chicago and talking about how miserable uh, Chicago was. And I have a suggestion for him that would really please the people of this city. If he finds the city so disreputable, if he thinks it's in, in such disrepair, take his name off that building on the Chicago River that is so gaudy and irritates people so much. 
he doesn't like Chicago and Chicago really doesn't like him. So let's just have the divorce and, and take, take the name off the building. Here, here, I'd like to see that Trump name come off a lot of stuff, including the Oval Office. So, my last call is a salute to Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, U.S. Army. Uh, born in the former Soviet Union, a refugee came here looking for freedom, and I will bet you dollars to donuts inspired by Ronald Reagan, the cause we used to have in the Republican Party before a real estate from developer rented us out to Putin and his thugs in Russia. So, Vindman, Colonel Vindman, fought in Iraq for this country under our flag. He's a citizen. He was wounded in action. He's serving on the National Security Council, and the Republican noise machine is now trying to accuse him of espionage. It is unbelievable, and it just shows you, sadly enough, the confederacy of dregs um, that surround this president. He's a hero, and he's going to have a lot to say, honestly, about how the White House is operating in foreign policy. I think it is another big turn of the vice on the president, and I can tell you Republicans are starting to feel the heat because they know this is not over yet. More is going to come out, and it's not good. Thank you, and a salute to patriots like Colonel Vindman who have the guts to stand up for what's right in this tough time. And thank you, brother, for another great conversation. I enjoyed it, pal. We will have. I, I have a feeling we're going to have more to talk about. Are you going uh, to the week. the guilty? We're not Jackson Jefferson, but let's all get together dinner. Are you going to be reporting live there from CNN? Like a lot of uh, Americans, I'm going to be glued to C-SPAN uh, that night, and I'm going to watch every action-packed second of it from the uh, comfort of my Barca lounger. I'm tempted so. to go so I can be the lone voice in the back saying, damn right, to uh, Bennett's speech. But uh, I think I'll be watching from home too. Where plenty to he talk may, about. He next might week. be willing to expend. He might be willing to expend his final campaign dollars to get you there. <laughs> All right, we'll see you next week. Thanks, pal.